You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to The Authenticity Show if you haven't already done so, wherever you get your podcasts. And please find us on social media. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, check out our YouTube channel, this will help us. And that came, of course, with a please and a thank you. Our guest today is Dana Martin. Dana is an advocate of natural birth, attachment parenting, and unschooling, and is the author of several books, including Radical Unschooling. You can find her website at danamartin.com. That's D-A-Y-N-A martin.com. And um, this is a great conversation. Let's get into it. So Dana, you are uh, an author. You've written a couple of books. Uh, you wrote, I, I have them here. You wrote uh, Radical Unschooling, A Revolution Has Begun. We have to talk about this. Um, and you made, uh, well, you, you recently had a book called Sexy Birth. And uh, we have to talk about that too. So, um, you know, like, you know, I, I know from from what I've read about you that you've been featured on various shows, well-known shows and things like this, talking about what you do. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, you are an unschooling advocate. And, and uh, there's a lot of people that are going to want to know what that is and have n- not even heard about this. Um, so maybe is that a good place to start? Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so most people have ho- heard of homeschooling. I mean, I think that's a term most people are familiar with. And um, unschooling is a type of homeschooling. But unschooling is really, really different than what most people think of homeschooling to be because unschooling is not doing school. Now, when somebody first hears that, they think to themselves, oh, my goodness, you know, people aren't learning. They're not educating their kids. But the truth is, it's about education, but it's about living without school, the trappings of school, the institutionalized aspect of school, the authoritarian paradigm. And so what unschooling is, is living life as though school doesn't exist, but a place where learning flourishes. So I have four kids. Let me just start off by saying um, I have um, two boys and two girls. I have a son who's 12 named Orion. Ivy is 15. Tiffany is 18. And Devin is turning 21 in a couple days, my oldest. So yeah, it's amazing. I I never um, expected to be an advocate or to be even living this life. It was something that happened really naturally and organically for me. So it all began um, when I gave birth to Devin. I was in the hospital. And shortly after giving birth to him, the nurses came in and they turned on the TV, of all things, um, and the Columbine shootings were happening live, like literally, as wow. I held him for the first time. And I and we're all trying to figure out what's going on and people screaming and parents. And it was just this really profound moment where I was holding my son, looking down at him and then looking up at the screen live at these parents losing children. And it's when it just came to me, I had this feeling of um, that I, I wondered how many of those parents and kids would have preferred to be home that day. Like how many of them didn't know they had the option? How many of them had no idea of the freedoms that they could be living? And I, from that point on, I said, my kids will always have the choice. So to me, unschooling is giving children the, the choice and the freedom to go to school or not, to use school or not. My kids never have. But it's basically learning through life. It's about learning through your passions. And it's against any kind of forced learning. Most people really confuse learning with forced learning in our culture because 
That's how most of us were told it had to be done or we wouldn't learn anything. We were told that if it wasn't forced and we weren't made to do it through punishments and rewards, that we wouldn't ever learn anything and we would be stupid and unmotivated. But that was all a lie. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, learning is like breathing and it feels really good when it's not forced upon us. So my kids, they, um, they're functioning members of society, I guess you could say. Um, they're wonderful people. I'm not just saying that. They have really interesting careers. And um, yeah, I'm happy to have you ask me any questions because there's so much yeah. to say, isn't well, there? Please go into your kids because that's perfect to segue right there. Okay, great. What do they so do? My son, yeah, my son, Devin, he's 21 and he's a computer programmer. He makes games. And he's also, he was he's a blacksmith, um, which is really interesting. He's completely self-taught. And all of these interests of his, why he does what he does is because he always had freedom with these things his entire life. From the moment he showed interest in fire when he was three years old, um, he wanted to light a match. And instead of saying, no, it'll hurt you, I said, okay, let's go somewhere safe. And I took him down in the cellar and he spent like hours learning how to light a match, one after the other into the fire, you know, into the big wood furnace that we had. And I sat with him to make sure he didn't get hurt. And he, you know, that graduated to starting fires outside. He learned how to do it and um, lighting candles at the kitchen table and playing with the wax. You know, keep in mind, this is all with my presence. And as a culture, we're told that kids should not do things like that generally. And parents are really feared into, into telling their kids not to. But I really, I just said yes as much as possible. I wasn't the wall standing between my kids and their desires. And I really believe that's why they are who they are today. So um, yeah, Devin's probably the most renowned in our unschooling family as far as like, um, like being seen publicly, you know, he's always, people have seen him grow up as an unschooler and um, he's getting married actually in a, in a couple of weeks. Isn't that crazy? Um, but yeah, my daughter, Tiffany, she's 18. She's an aspiring model and she's a musician and um, she's in a very different mindset. Like Devin's like supernaturally minded for the most part. He loves survival in the woods and builds forts where Tiffany's all about fashion and designer and makeup. And, and um, then there's my daughter, Ivy, who is practicing guitar right now with a guitar teacher online in the background, if you can hear it. Mm -hmm. Now, Ivy is, is very interesting to most people because she looks really scary. She, she's totally gothed out. She has her hair dreaded and she looks like, um, you know, she loves Marilyn Manson. So she looks like that kind of kid. However, she um, runs an animal rescue. She saves animals. She's a, like a vegan advocate. Um, she's a really wonderful human being. And yeah, I mean, I sound like one of those bragging mothers. And I, and I don't want to sound like because I'm living this life, my kids are amazing. Because you know what? My kids aren't any different than most kids out there at all. They're not exceptional. They were just given freedom and they were trusted. So I believe every child could do anything that I'm sharing that my kids do. It's just, they're usually living somebody else's agenda and not given the opportunity. So. Mm, wow. The, the uncarved block idea. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I love it. I, I, I can really see that the diversity in your children shows that this philosophy you have really was just like watering the seeds that were really in them. And they're, yeah. they're really becoming who they are. You know, that's, that's, that's fantastic. I'll bet you get a lot of uh, instantaneous fears and resistance that come up in other people when they hear this. Um, yeah. I mean, I know you get a lot of fears and resistance from people um, when you start talking about this. Um, uh, what are some of the biggest fears that people have? 
Um, it's so interesting. You know, when I first started on this journey as an advocate, I would, I would kind of take it personal when people would get offended, but I really learned over time that people, I, I would, I felt the same way, you know, 25 years ago, if somebody would have told me that a child could be successful or want to learn if they weren't forced, I wouldn't have believed it either. So I try to have compassion when people come with, with judgment. Um, but the biggest argument I think is that they will never want to do anything if they're not forced to do it. Meaning if I don't force them to do things they don't want to do, then they're never going to be able to like hold a job or, you know, do certain things that other people do. Um, but I, it's not true. Actually, I usually break things down. If somebody says that, um, if somebody wants a job bad enough, um, they will do what they need to do. They will jump through the hoops. They will stay, they will take orders. So the biggest argument is about the parenting side of this guys, like the parenting side of it, is very different than how most people parent their kids. So I'm happy to share about that. Yeah. Okay. I love those differences. Most people parent in the authoritarian paradigm, and that's the more traditional based paradigm where the parents are the ones that um, kind of control everything. It's focused on behavior modification, control, knowing, thinking that you know what's best for your child despite what their wants or needs are. And you basically parent in a way that can, controls their behavior, behavior modification techniques. So this type of parenting that we do and that I'm promoting is really different. It's called partnership-based paradigm parenting. So in partnership, you focus on the needs of not just the parent, like in the traditional approach, but the needs of the kids and every, you know, everybody in the family equally. So instead of focusing on behavior, you focus on, we focus on um, the needs under the behavior, which is a very different way to go about it. It takes a lot more time, a lot more time to find solutions that work for everybody in the family and that meet everybody's needs. Can you give us an example of, of finding um, the need underneath the behavior with like maybe an example with one of your kids or a hypothetical one? Um, sure. Um, well, let me give you the example of something that I want to kind of draw a comparison with. So say that you had a foreign exchange student come stay with you, right? And he was from a far off country and didn't know the rules. And he was, um, say he was in, in the in your house and it was like bouncing a ball in your house and it was kind of bouncing all over the place and you gave him information and said, you know, Raul or whatever, we generally, we you can bounce that outside in the house. We could, you could break something. And, and he would say, oh, okay, yeah, no problem. Thanks. And, and go, it would be no big deal. You'd be giving information. If that was so, so that level of respect is a given for most in our culture, for other adults interacting, for somebody else's kids, for a teen that's coming to visit from a far off land but with people's children, if that was somebody's child, it would be extremely different. It would be like, if you do that again, I'm taking that away. Now, can you imagine if you said that to that exchange student or you said that to another adult, they'd be like, what the f no, you're not going to do that. You'd instantly resist. You'd be like, what, what the hell are you doing, dude? Step off. You know, but so kids, kids are very uh, discriminated against in our culture. However, if you were to approach a child with that same dynamic, that same level of respect in a partnership-based dynamic and be like, sweetie, um, you don't focus on the behavior of the ball. You would say he wants to bounce the ball. I want to help him get his needs met. Where else can we go to do it safely? And you could say, why don't we go outside and do that? So nothing gets broken. Come with me or let's go play. Instead of the threatening and the punishments and the rewards and all of the authoritarian dynamic that just creates such discourse between parent and child. And it's not necessary. In fact, when you treat somebody like that with that level of disrespect, they do not want to do what you say ever. In fact, you're, you're, they don't like you. <laughs> it's not a pleasant relationship and it's not healthy. So maybe that's not the best example. I'm trying to think of something else. Um, I think that 
that one of the points you're making is, you know, by focusing on the need rather than the behavior, the person feels respected. Yeah. And, yeah. and then of course, because you're addressing their need, chances are they won't need to do that specific behavior in order exactly. to feel better. Yeah. And so if you envision anything that people say to a child, if you were to say that to somebody you love, whether it's your best friend or your partner, how would they respond if you said it to them in the same exact way you say it to a child? Hmm. Think of these things like saying, don't put that in there. You go pick that up right now and go put it in there. Your partner would be like, what, excuse me. Why are you talking to me like that? Like, yeah, and don't, don't talk to feel, me like a child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or don't, don't disrespect me. That's not nice. You know? And so Kids feel all of that. The same thing you would feel if the two of you talk to each other that way. You have a certain just dynamic, a level of respect. And if you talk to each other that way, it would be hurtful. You wouldn't want to be friends. You'd be like, this person disrespects me. Children feel like that every single time a parent talks to them like that, but they can't articulate it. They feel it. They take it in deeply and it affects their self-esteem. It affects, it damages the relationship between parent and child so that you're not an influence on their lives. You know, when your kids trust you and you're not the wall between them and their desires and they know that you're there to help them get what they want in life, they believe what you say when you give them information and they turn to you for information. I have another example I could give you that, like a real life example, and then we can move on to the next point. But so my friend, my, my son, Devin, had a friend over. He must have been about 13 years old and we had a trampoline outside. The boy across the street was a traditionally parented, like, you know, grounded. If he got in trouble, you know, forced to do things he didn't want. He came over to visit. They were both jumping on the trampoline. Well, the boy jumped and the net around the trampoline, he grabbed it and he jumped in it and he pulled it and it ripped. And um, the boy instantly said to Devin, oh my God, oh my God, don't tell your mom, don't tell your mom. And Devin stopped. He's like, why? Like, why wouldn't I tell my mom? She'll help us fix it. Why wouldn't, oh no, no, she'll, she'll tell my mom and I'll get in trouble. Don't tell her, please don't tell her. She's going to get mad at me. And Devin said, no, my mom's going to help. It's not a big deal. She'll just come out. And the boy was like, what? And Devin said, watch, watch. And he called me and I said, oh, that's too bad guys. Let me help you. Let's rig it up here. Help, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the boy said, please don't tell my mom. If you tell her that this happened, I will be grounded. And he was scared. Wow. And it it hit me. But think of how, how normal that reaction is. We had the you know, most of us have these kind of reactions. Don't tell, yeah. don't tell. Yeah. You know, things mm-hmm. are changing. Like children are next on the human rights agenda. And when you treat them like human beings and you treat them with respect, which I know takes a lot of undoing and deconditioning, but it changes everything. When children know they can turn to you and you're not the one delving out punishments and taking away their freedoms and treating them like crap, you're, you're blown away with what they can accomplish. So hold on. <laughs> I was a traveling yeah. from the bathroom to my daughter's room. She brings her music with her everywhere. Ah, very good. Yeah. So, so Dana, um, you talk about attachment parenting. Could you describe what that is? And is, is, is that what you are talking about right now? Or, uh... Well, attachment parenting, I think, is probably a little bit of a more known term than unschooling or radical unschooling. And it's a paradigm of parenting, the, the partnership-based, again, where babies are born and you, you kind of trust what they're communicating to you. So if they cry and they're hungry, you feed them. If they want to be held, you hold them. And generally, a lot of people sleep close to their babies. They don't, they don't believe in letting their, their babies cry it out in a room by themselves. And so it's a much more natural, instinctually-based approach. And it's something that I just naturally did. I didn't plan on it. Um, when I brought my first child home from the hospital, Devin, I put him in this little 
bassinet that my mother-in-law gave me. It was like this handed down bassinet. It was like the sacred thing. And everybody was like, oh, she gets this thing, you know? And so I put Devin in it and I, and I sat down on the couch and he started crying. And my mother-in-law said, no, no, don't, don't pick him up. Don't pick him up. He has to learn. He has to learn to take care of himself. Now this is a four day old baby. And, um, she was like warning me, do not pick him up when he cries. He'll be creating a monster. And so I just let, let him cry. And I sat there, you know, aching to hold my child. Everything inside me was telling me to pick him up. And, and she left. And the first thing I did was I ran over and I grabbed him and just held him and said, I will never, ever do that to you again, ever, ever. But it was, um, you know, uh, the way most people are told to do things. And that was the beginning of the end of my relationship with my mother-in-law. Actually, <laughs> It was kind of sadly. She just needed a hug. She just needed yeah, you to she needed the hug. Oh yeah. my gosh, I tried so many times because you know we're raised to be people pleasers, aren't we? And so social conformity. When you are, yeah, yeah. When and when you're raised to strong impulse. When you're yeah, if you're a good kid, a good kid is somebody who's obedient and pleases the adults in their lives, and you know it's we're raised like that. Yeah, it's it's all about really? survival. I mean, you please them, then you're not an outcast. You're not shunned by society. You'll get to eat again, and maybe even mate and have your own children. <laughs> yes, that's exactly <laughs> right. That's how primitive biology. And, and and what needs are those behaviors satisfying? Right now, because <laughs> right. we just talked about that, you know. So, yeah, exactly. And so you know, it was a hard emotional journey to let go of needing to have my mother-in-law approve of me because the need to parent my child in a way that felt right had to overweight. You know overweight all of that so yeah mm. it's been a long road here but it's been good i, I want to um bring our attention back to something i said earlier because um i feel like it's something to link what we're talking about to some of our other shows as well um, we've talked about Taoism and the natural order of things like mm-hmm. following a natural way and allowing nature to teach us and what you're talking about right now um, is very much about um, looking inwardly at what the nature of parenting really is and this biological uh, need that you had, for example, to grab your kid when your kid was um, crying uh, and trusting what was the natural instinct rather than feeling like you have to protect yourself from the natural instinct. Like you're somehow, instead of putting an artificial set of boundaries over it enforced from some idea that you have you're trusting the feelings and allowing the feelings to guide you and then describing it so it's not it's not like top down it's coming from bottom up you know from the root and yeah. earlier i said this is reminding me of the principle of the uncarved block in taoism and as Satch knows what i'm talking about right now but it's this idea that in the nature of this block of wood is, say, whatever a spirit or a nature or quality that it has that the carver can either, you know, subdue and try to carve over and create something with, or the respect to the, to the beauty of the uncarved block is given in that it is perfect already as it is without modifying it. And so the best... Uh, most connected artists would um, only whatever carving, whatever um, cut, whatever shaving would be only to bring out what was already there. And it's as if you wouldn't need to carve it at all. Like uncarved, it's perfect. 
and can you carve and still keep it uncarved in a way where it's not, it's as if you're not carving it, even though you are carving it. So the principle of the bonsai tree is very similar. Yeah. You know, you're only bringing out what's already there and wants to come out. So you, Carlos, like your I, parenting is, is that. Yeah, Carlos, I think we need to do an uncarving workshop. <laughs> that, 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 that'll be fun. Yeah, we'll <laughs> sit around looking at our blocks. I had to, yeah. Never touching our carving equipment. But it sounds like what you're, what you're doing with the kids is respecting that there is an individual nature to each one. Each one is unique. And when you respect it and don't get in the way of it, but only do very minimal adjustments along the way, the, the, the least with the most effect, because you're trusting that whatever innate intelligence is there, you know, their nature is going to blossom into something that has a special purpose or has a uniqueness to it. And you don't want to get in the way of it. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I love yeah. that. That's so true. And, you know, I think it's just as a culture, a lot of people are raised to believe that human beings are kind of born bad and need to be made good. And so we need to not never trust them, always assume negative intent. You got to kind of train a human being to be a good person. And this philosophy is completely uh, not like that. The opposite, in fact, it's assuming positive intent that children want to, they're born good and want to do good. And you assume that all they're, they're doing the best they can with what they know at the time. And so many of us today, guys, I'm sure you can relate. We spend so much of our adult years trying to get back to being living in the now and trusting ourselves and building self-esteem and gaining confidence and, you know, mindfulness. And the, we would naturally have that if, if we weren't, you know, taught to distrust ourselves and, and have our spirits broken and have to take orders from authority. And the only reason we spend all our time now getting back there is because it was robbed from us. But I'm hoping and what I'm seeing to be true is that our children never have that taken from them. And so they're not spending all these years of their lives getting back to that space that we so desperately want to, want to be because they're always honored in it. So, you know, it's very easy for kids on this path in the sense of it's very natural for them. But parents, we have a harder time because we have a lot of conditioning to undo, a lot of fears, a lot of, you know, we want to deprogram our minds of seeing things in certain ways. And so it's about a lot of inner work. It's definitely worth it. And um, the more people that do this, it's interesting. It's just growing. It's growing so fast. What used to be so radical and so fringe now is being taken as um, making logical sense, you know, for people. Well, this, so, is, this is all happening during the coronavirus, COVID-19 quarantines worldwide and all this kind of stuff. I'll bet um, there are a lot of parents who are, um, for lack of a better term, um, uh, eating their own words a little bit. Um, Maybe people who I would think had strong voices against what you're doing. Have you seen a lot of turnaround in, in that area? Yeah, like unbelievably so. I never expected this to happen. You know, I, I always felt that what this is promoting is going to become, you know, just, just natural for people to be doing 50 years from now, but not this soon. And this is really just like any ever any other evolution of consciousness, any other evolution of freedom for people. It wasn't very long ago that men were told to beat their wives if dinner wasn't on the table on time. They were told to love, honor, and obey their husbands, and men were trained by their fathers to make women obey and to serve them. And look how far we've come. And this was only, that wasn't long ago. That was not very long ago that that was in the course of human history. True. Now a man would be arrested if he treated a woman like that. And all that's happening now is that it's, it's time for children to have that same level of respect. So it's this, this mode of evolution 
this natural course of things where children are now being seen as human beings, not creatures to obey, just like women weren't or, you know, anybody else in the past that's overcome discrimination. And um, yeah, it's amazing that it's happening so early. And I think it's because parents are kind of forced in this dynamic, right? They're, they have their kids home all day, every day. Now, I thought when this happened, I'm like, I'm going to get so many calls from people for coaching. How can I survive this? My kids are driving me crazy. What am I going to do? But something really interesting, guys, is that that's not what's happening at all. Like, mind-blowing. People are contacting me saying, oh, my goodness, this is way better than I ever thought it could be. Like, I, I was lied to. I was told how miserable my life would be. And I want to learn some more skills getting along better with my kids. I want to be a better parent to them. So we're all living cohesively. And so how do you do that? How do you go to this? So this is the whole, this is the shift from the authoritarian paradigm to the partnership one. So this is Chris. So many people have messaged me saying, I'm not sending my kids back when this is done. No way. This is awesome. Wow. That's awesome. It's pretty crazy. Like I am blown away and so happy for parents to have this joy. This is our birthright to have these wonderful relationships with our children. We're trained to train our kids to take orders. I don't think people realize that you would not parent this way. If you were on a deserted island and you just had your child with no outside influence, you you would parent the way that I'm promoting. Like with anybody you care about, you'd love them. You'd hold them when they cried. You wouldn't be manipulated into thinking that these creatures need to be trained. You, You would instinctually know. And so people are really coming into the space of trusting their kids and their themselves. And it feels, it feels good. It does not feel good to control human beings all day, every day and punish them. A lot it's terrible. Yeah. A lot of extra work. Yeah. Think about it. Hey, hey Dana. Um, I'm sure people have a lot of questions about um, like the legal and political aspect of all this. Um, you know, I, I hated school growing up. I loved like college and higher education. I, I, I fell in love with that, but I hated school growing up. And I felt like all I did was get up really early in the morning and go to prison every day <laughs> and then come home. And it's, it's funny because uh, I, I happen to be an occupational therapist and uh, I don't do pediatric practice, but I had to do plenty of it in my training. And every time I had to go to a, an elementary school, these old feelings of like, like seriously, like as an adult, I had these old feelings of dread start to rise up in me because I hated those places, the little milk cartons and the low ceilings and <laughs> all that stuff. Just, you know, I, and, and I had to go back and feel it as an adult to realize what a gigantic uh, impact it had on me as, as a child. So um, where were you all my life when I was a kid and <laughs> was going to prison every day? Uh, what, what, what happens with the legal side of this? How does this occur? How are you allowed to do this? What are the challenges people face? Um, please talk about that. Sure. Uh, I know in the United States, so unschooling is legal in all 50 states. It's a form of un, uh, homeschooling like any other form of homeschooling. And every state has a different regulation and different hoops you have to jump through. Um, some have you know, need to hire an evaluator, for example. And what a lot of people do is they hire an unschooling-friendly evaluator. And there are many. So unschooling is living life as though school doesn't exist. And you're not compartmentalizing things. You're not saying, okay, now we're doing science. Now we're doing math. Now we're doing English. Um, in fact, that's a really unnatural way to live. And we're not living like that right now, are we? So it's, it's very um, strange to do that, actually, unless you're conditioned to think it's normal. So, but what, what evaluators do, unschooling-friendly evaluators, is they take your children's life 
experiences, what they're interested in, what they're doing with their time, and they translate it into what we call schoolies. Because although we don't break life down into subjects, if you were to break it down with all of their interests and how you're facilitating it, you would see that it does touch on all these things. So if somebody um, contacts me, I put them in touch with a couple of people in their state that could help them. So people are doing this successfully all over the world. I mean, I just spoke in China, actually, like what, nine months ago, wow. I think, 10 um, months ago. Um, people are I coming on to this like China, it's illegal not right now, but people are still doing it, interestingly enough. Yeah. Is this in Taiwan or, or People's this Republic? This is in Shenzhen, Shenzhen, China. Okay, so mm-hmm. People's Republic. But I've also been spoken in India about it. Um, one of the main speakers on an educational uh, event put on by the country, actually, by the politicians. They invited me to come along with other educators all over the world to share other ideas and ways that you could help children learn in a more modern day and age. And so... People are doing this in every country of the world. They really are. And this is growing hugely. I mean, there's tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people doing this in the U.S. So although it sounds really weird and new, a lot of people unschool. I'd say about 10% of homeschoolers unschool right now, maybe a little more. It's growing. But most people do what schools do when they buy the curriculum and they, they're in that dynamic of forced learning and threats and punishments and the authoritarian dynamic. Most parents can't even fathom forcing their kids to do schoolwork on top of forcing them to do everything else that they do have to enforce. So most parents don't consider homeschooling. However, now that people are doing it because they have to, they're, they're desperate for another way. And so they're finding me. A lot of people are finding me and my work and other people that are promoting a more peaceful based approach. And it's basically changing the course of human history. It is. I'm, it's pretty amazing. Um, Dana, do you, do you have experience with um, parents who have um, kids with behavioral problems, like like um, let's say autism or you know, ADHD or PANS or other kinds of? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of parents that reach out with kids that are labeled autism or ADD, ADHD, and I know there's a lot of beliefs surrounding these labels. Some people do not believe that they exist. Some people think they do. I personally trust parents to know their children. Labels are not. They, parents are coming to this life. Um, you know, I think some of the labels are a little weird, like ODD, oppositional, oppositional defiant disorder. To me, that's it's a child who is just strong-willed, doesn't like to be given, given orders, doesn't like to take orders. And we label it a, you know, we over-label and over-drug, basically, in our culture. But yes, people, I work with people all the time with kids like that and say that they're thriving. You know, a lot of these kids have a harder time fitting into the system. They have a harder time taking orders. And and sadly, the way it's approached usually is with more force, more threatening, more behavior modification. You know, guys, I think that children are being born now at this time in history with the innate just desire and inner knowing of freedom and injustice stronger than we were. And this is part of the whole evolution of consciousness. Like kids are being born saying, no way, am I going to be treated like that? And they're not easy for parents who are not ready to look into alternatives. But when they work with their kids and trust them and um, use a different dynamic, it changes everything for them. So it's been very successful with kids with these labels, yes. Mm. You know, autism is a condition that, well, talk about uh, behavior being linked to underlying needs. Autism is all about that. You know, a lot of the behaviors that you'll see 
kids with autism have, uh, you know, in occupational therapy anyways, we, we look at them very much as, ah, oh, this is a troubling behavior. Well, we, we do exactly what you were talking about earlier. Well, why are they doing that? What are they getting out of that? What is that satisfying in them? Is there, you know, maybe if we can identify that, perhaps there are other ways they could discover to satisfy that same need that actually works better for everybody, including them. You know, so it sounds like the mm-hmm. home environment really would be an amazing place for that to happen. So, you know, I, I, I see that as being very, very possible. I don't see why that can't happen at home. Yeah. Oh, I love hearing what you're saying because I haven't heard of very many people with that approach with kids with autism. And I love that. It makes me very hopeful. Yeah. You know, uh, like, for example, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and share something that I like to share with students. Um, they say that kids with not just children with autism, but uh, a, a lot of kids that have any sort of neurological condition, they have a tendency to uh, do behaviors like, you know, flapping their hands and pulling their ears and hitting themselves and biting and these kinds of things. Um, it's really, really easy to understand if we just say, hey, have you ever stood in front of a freezing cold body of water and you're about to jump in? What do you do? We should go, oh my gosh, oh, here we go. We slap ourselves like, oh, we get ready to jump in. We're doing the same darn thing. We're, we're doing something with our body because somehow, for some reason, that does something to get us into what well, we think it's getting us into some proper state of mind to be able to tackle this thing that we're about to do that we think is going to be uncomfortable. And so for, for these people that have nervous systems that are functioning differently, uh, just regular, ordinary things in life can be very uncomfortable. Sounds outside can be very uncomfortable. I, I, had a, I, I had a student who was autistic who said she's distracted by people's heartbeats when she's having conversation with, the, with them and she has to, to tune out their heartbeat. Or, or she can hear electricity going through the wires in the walls and she's got to filter that out in order to pay attention to a conversation. And so if we had those things distracting us all the time, we might have to go, oh, I, I, I can't concentrate with that. And so people might say, oh, look, look at Satch. He's doing this with his hands all day long. What's wrong with him? He's just trying to figure out how to live, you know? And, and like all of this is much more comfortable at home rather than in a strange public environment at school. I feel like crying listening to you. Like you, you get it. Now take that entire approach and, and put it on to two-year-olds, three-year-olds, all of these like behaviors that little kids have. They're so disrespected by most people and, and people think they need to be trained out of them. But little kids, all of us do things that can be really hard for other people to understand why we're doing them. True. You know, I, I love what's happening in our culture right now in a lot of ways. The, sh- the show Atypical, for example, is about a boy with autism. And this show love it. has introduced show. Uh, so many people to understand why. When we understand the why, we want to help each other. Human beings want to help each other. We're... we're by nature good and want to support each other it's it's when we think the behavior is weird and we label it and when i was a kid in school children like that were kept away from all the other kids and they were put in a special room and we were so everybody was so you know separate and and now there's so many different issues that are being more accepted and i think in an unschooling environment you know parents are utilizing a lot of outside outside support that come into their homes and so they're taking advice from people like you such and, and saying come in at my home and show me how to to apply this in my house and most kids do so much better in their own environment and they're just so much more accepted so i want you to put me in touch with other people like you because 
Mm. I'm very excited for for parents who need somebody you that know, gets the philosophy. Sure, sure. You know, there, there's there's a, a huge, huge um, section of the occupational therapy community that just does outpatient sensory integration therapy. And uh, mm-hmm. any any of your clients or any of the people that that you uh, work with that are unschooling their kids, if they have those kinds of behaviors, they really could just consult with an occupational therapist and they'll, they'll come to their house and, or, or they can take them out to their, their clinic and teach them those uh, strategies that we use. Um, we, we call it sensory integration where we just look at the human body as, okay, so if you look at my body and imagine I'm a black box and, and I have input coming in through all of my senses, I have throughput, meaning that I process it and then some output comes out, which is some kind of behavior. All we do is we just systematically start to control and categorize what input we're allowing to come in so we can start to see how the person reacts, how they respond. Then we can say, hmm, I wonder what would happen if we maybe altered this input coming in. Maybe we're going to take anything crunchy out of their food and just see what happens. Maybe we're going to take out everything slimy from their food and see what happens. And suddenly you start to realize that, oh, all they're eating behavior difficulties are better now because uh, we discovered that they hate crunchy and it's that simple, you know? And so that can be done with all kinds of input, what they see, what they smell, what they taste, what they hear, what they feel through their skin, um, what they get through their vestibular system and their inner ear types of motions. And so there's lots of people that would love to help um, this whole unschooling movement happening, you know, cause, cause uh, well, they already get it. You guys already get it. You're, you're yeah. doing it every day. This is literally what the approach is focused on is focusing on the needs and how to help kids get what they want and have their needs met and have, you know, to model that for the world. Mm. When you're, when you're living in an authoritarian dynamic with kids and you're controlling their behavior and they have, they're forced to listen to the one in power. If kids learn what they live, what is that teaching them? It's teaching them that when they're older, they get to do that to other people. And they do as bullies on the playground or as, you know, kids, they get older and they, they're doing the same thing that was done to them and forcing people to meet their needs instead of finding ways to meet them on their own. So this approach is like a little mini cosm of world peace. That's what it reminds me of in each home that's doing it because you're modeling that everybody's needs matter equally. And, and it truly, truly works. Children literally learn what they live. And so when you're taking the time to help your child and you're, and you're taking the time to brainstorm on ways to figure things out, you know, if, if a family sits down and everybody wants to do something differently, you say, like, what does everybody want to do? Let's lay this on the table. You want to go here. You want to go there. Let's all brainstorm on a way to make this happen so everybody can do what they want. And the kids are invested. They're, they're not like in this top-down authority where they just need to be told what to do. Their ideas matter. They have some really good ideas. And they learn this is how you live with other human beings. Everyone's needs matter. And everybody takes the time to figure out ways to meet it. So, yeah. So peace starts in the home, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> it does. As, as, um, no, as silly as that might sound. People have heard that so many times. But it really, it really does. It really does. That's so cool. That's well, awesome. speaking of modeling, uh, Dana, um, who were your early influences in this particular school of thought? Oh my goodness. Um, my, my kids, I know it sounds weird to say maybe, but I just, I learned this through trusting them and through listening and being, being responsive, you know, with the like attachment parenting philosophy, all that is, is listening to your kids and not worrying that you meeting their needs is going to ruin them. 
and you just slowly, it just, it continues, you know, it continues through their whole lives. So, but there was some other people, John Taylor Gatto. I really liked his work. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. No, I haven't. He, um, he or... was New York City Teacher of the Year for four okay. years in a row. He recently died, sadly, but he was like a grandfather to me. He was the one that encouraged me to write my book, Radical Unschooling. He spent a lot of time on the phone with me in the evenings. And so he, he really shares what the true intention of schools were when they came to be. You know, when the schools were basically invented and compulsory education started, what the intention was for that. And I think people would be really surprised to read that. And once they they learn about that, they see that, okay, so schools aren't really what I thought they were. They're kind of to teach children to take orders and be yes men. And I know teachers, there's many. What? To be workers. Yeah, to be workers. I mean, it was the machine, you know. Or there was the administration, I can't remember which school board it was or or uh, maybe it's the american board of education or something like that back in the day that the comment was we don't want a nation of thinkers we want a nation of workers mm. yeah and at the time that wow. it was invented it made sense for the for the powers that be to do that and you know when compulsory education started in the 1800s you know how 88 percent of parents protested like violently they, they said there's no way you're going to do this to our children it, it started in the boston area of U.S. And there's mm. amazing articles written about it and firsthand accounts from people that went through it, how their children were forced and taken away from them and put in the system. And so, I mean, it's it's not a system set up to create free-thinking individuals at all. Mm. It's amazing that we came out that way, but we had to do a lot of, you know, our, something inside of us was telling us that things weren't right. My biggest influence, I think, when I look back was kind of my own feelings, you know, looking back, I remember what it felt like to be four at certain times. I remember what it felt like to be six and being told I couldn't go to the bathroom when I wanted to. And I remember very well all these ages, being a teenager. And yeah, and I always bring that into my work now. When I think about and talk to parents about kids, what you think about your child, their intentions is not real. You need You need to think back to when you were that age and you were good and you did not want to be lying and cheating and stealing and doing dishonest things, but you wanted your freedom. You had your needs. You had this innate desire to grow and experience and you were, you were forced to do what other people wanted and it's damaging all around, you know, and, and history's shown us that. So I know what people think is really radical today is going to be accepted eventually. And I think that's happening sooner than later with this coronavirus thing. Hmm. What was, what was your school like growing up? Um, I'm, I'm curious for both of you. I don't know, Carlos, did you love school? Dana, did you love it? Hate it? Uh, were you good students? I, I'm just, I'm kind of curious. Um, I, I was okay. I was like an average, I was an above average student. I liked, I got really good grades um, because school was easy for me uh, for some reason. Um, yeah, it's all I knew. So I don't remember terribly suffering in the dynamic. I do remember when I got older, though, when I really didn't like school, when it was junior high, you know, around that time, I remember telling my mom, like, I don't want to go. There's girls that are going to beat me up. They've threatened me. I'm petrified of my life. They tell me I'm dead. And I, and I had a lot of bullying when I was younger. That wasn't what drove me to this life, however, but um, my mother saying, I would love to keep you home, sweetie. Like, I want to, but I'll get in trouble. I'll get in such deep trouble. I can't. I don't have that. I can't say that. I, feel, I can go to jail for not, keep, you know, for keeping you home. And I remember thinking, what the, this is the weirdest thing. How on earth can my mother be afraid of, of an institution? And 
So there's times in my life where I said that was wrong. She should have been able to have the freedom to keep me home. And mm. yeah. Wow. Little so did really you know well then. My <laughs> what? Little did you know oh. then. Yeah. She says to me all the time now, she's like, I wish I knew what you, you know, I wish I knew then what you knew now. And the interesting thing is she could have done this, but she mm. was, people don't know. They're told that they can. They're told. Dana, she no, was and there was nobody else <laughs> and there was nobody else doing it you're an unusual woman <laughs> yeah i guess yeah. so <laughs> yeah it's really cool it's beautiful thank mm-hmm. you thank you guys so all right Car- well yeah i was gonna say carlos what about you did you what, what was school like for you um well i liked a lot of school um and i excelled at it um up till Mm, till like the second half of ninth grade. Uh, so I was at the top of my class in different areas um, up until then. Uh, and right at that point, I think I, I uh, developed a, a strong distaste. Right around the time we met? <laughs> yeah, around the same time. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it was because of you, Sam. <laughs> yeah, I, that's what I was afraid of. You know, my I, I, I'm going to I'm going to prison every day, right? And then it, you know, my, my prison mentality was rubbing off on you, maybe. Yeah, no, um, no. It just there was a lot going on in my life. Um, I think what some people might call emotional emotional uh, trauma or whatever you want to call it, and it just all hit at the same time, uh, connected with a very abusive teacher, um, and. So it it drilled into me that I that I cannot seek to understand this with my teacher, and I didn't have anybody else at the time to help me understand it. So I basically said, I mean, an internal executive decision that was, okay, um, suffer intensely for really no perceivable benefit, or let go of any need to have it and suffer less. So I went for option two. Okay. Uh, there wasn't anybody who took a real strong interest in helping me through that at that moment in my life. And uh, my teacher certainly not. Um, so you couldn't ask questions, for example, without being screamed at at the top of his lungs. So you, there was just, I gave up at that mm. point. Okay. But as you know, I love learning. Of so course, yeah. Outside yeah. of school that I became most interested. So a lot of times it's, I would be in class and I'd have books on various esoteric subjects that I would be closet reading in the back, um, <laughs> not paying attention to class, but educating myself about the things that were important to me. Yeah, yeah. Of course, as you know, I, w- I went the non-standard education route, um, and I am pretty much constantly diving into new learning and, and things like So I love learning. I just didn't like the institution. Yeah, yeah, It was at yeah. that point that I realized this feels like prison, like what you're, you're describing. Mm-hmm. It felt like... For me to be me, I've got to hide who I am, and I've got to outsmart the people who are attempting to control me. <laughs> so that's yeah. pretty, you know, wow. it's like, you know. That sounds like something our new friend Dana Martin would talk about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm relating, relating to everything you're saying so much. Yeah, it's mm. very disempowering. And I think that we, we become two people, you know, we, we really do. We become the people that we truly are. And then the people that we need to be around the adults in our lives who threaten our freedoms every at every second, because that's really what it's about. You know, we just want to be free. We want to do what we want. And when adults are using um, 
our basic freedoms and what we want to do is, is means to control us. It's really warping. It warps mm-hmm. the human condition a lot. Yeah, so I ended really up, uh, well said, distributing yeah. uh, underground newspapers and things like that for my school. And You did that? Wow, I didn't know that. That's so cool. That. Oh, this is going to be a whole other show. We got yeah. to talk about this. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Hey, Dana. You were like a natural born rebel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, Dana, I was going to say, you know, um, uh, there's, there's, there's some other things in your life. And before we wrap it up, I just want to at least touch on a couple other things. Uh, you are really into natural childbirth and you wrote a book ab- about this, right? Sexy birth. Uh, yeah. yeah. What, what, what do we need to know? What do people need to hear? <laughs> So I've written um, three books. Radical Unschooling, A Revolution Has Begun is the first one, and that's probably my most known one. And then what most people don't know about me is that um, I was a childbirth teacher and a doula, and I'm a midwife. So I this is a huge part of my life. And I wrote a book about called Sexy Birth, which is about the continuum of sexuality between conception and birth. It's not about being sexy in labor, which <laughs> the name needs to be changed, I think, because so many people take it the wrong way. <laughs> But um, I wonder why people are like, what is that about? <laughs> so, yeah, it's just this, it's the story of how I became to do what I'm doing. And I really okay. think the beginning of everything that I'm talking about that I share with you guys today starts with birth. I do, because when women give up their power and they're rescued by like a doctor and given drugs to numb them. The connection between mother and child that's supposed to naturally occur, you know, generally doesn't. And the separation begins. And that's the intention of it all. Hmm. Now, I mean, I know there's true medical reasons and that people need hospitals and need doctors and thank goodness for those. But it's very rare. 98.9% of women can birth completely naturally and wonderfully. And the only reason that I got excited about it was because I never thought that I could do it ever. I was like the biggest wuss you could even imagine that when I had a natural birth, I was blown. I couldn't even believe how amazing it was. Like it changed me. It, it turned me into the fiercely protective mother and badass woman that I became over time because I did something like that on my own you know? wow. and, and people believed in me and trusted me. So it's about midwifery, a lot of it and, and how having uh, the, the different um, professions between midwifery and the medically managed approach to birth mm-hmm. and how wow. damaging it is. And so, so I won't you know, get into all the details, but yes. Sure, sure. But just like briefly, you know, uh, yeah. a lot of people don't know that, for example, um, most breach births are fine. This is, yeah. This, yeah, this, they, this is true. Um, and um, I, I was born at home. In 1973, yeah, I was born at home. Uh, oh my, oh my, 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 the doctor back, you know, back in 1973, the doctor could actually come to your house. You know, I was born in an apartment, yeah. an upstairs apartment in Santa Ana, California, in 1973, and I was born at home, and it was a little bit complicated too. Um, uh, I guess I wanted to come out seeing the world face first, and the doctor had to move my head right, or <laughs> I was going to bend backwards. Yeah, but, but it was okay. I've heard uh, of- you know. So, so you know, uh, I, I, I've been through that. I remember also being a child. I was very, very young, and another uh, set of friends that we knew uh, were having a home birth. And I remember being there when she gave birth. That's memorable, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, it was a heck of an experience. So it doesn't seem too outlandish to me that babies so could be cool. born in you know teepees and tents and huts and cabins and yeah. apartments. When were you born in 1973? Uh, January 28, 73. Okay. I was born in yeah. 73 also. 
Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. So how, how, how close are in we? May. Uh, May. Uh, I, in May. Yes. Oh, so May. next okay. month. All right. Great. It's my birthday. Great. Yeah. Well, that's so great. I'm jealous, like hearing about this wonderful home birth experience that your, your mom had that I wish my mom had. Hers was like such the opposite experience. She was told that there's no way that she could birth me. I was too big. And they gave her a C-section without even her trying, you know? And so mm-hmm. that she was really robbed of an experience, which I feel, I know that um, affected my entire upbringing. Mm-hmm. So everything's connected and how a baby comes into this world has a profound impact on how the mother views their role and the relationship. And there's so many things connected to that. So, so many people are home birthing now, guys. This is amazing. Like they don't want to birth in the hospital right now because of the coronavirus yeah. and all the fear surrounding that. Yeah. Makes sense. I fit sort of in between the two of you. So if this were a Goldilocks story, I'd be there. <laughs> just right. Just were, right. Were, you, you were born on the way to the hospital, Carlos? Yeah, I was <laughs> <laughs> no, um, my mother um, said that I was the first um, in the, we had six, there were six kids in our, in our family. I'm the last, um, the, the youngest child. Um, but when she had me, she finally had the ability to uh, have the birth the way she wanted it, which was with no drugs and just real minimal supervision, just kind of let me do my own thing. Let me breathe through this. And she said it was uh, pretty easy. She said it was the easiest that she had had um, because she felt empowered that she could choose for herself to not be drugged because she wanted to have the experience. And she said, I came out fairly, fairly easy with no trouble. And, and she felt uh, particularly uh, joyful because it wasn't this feeling of a bunch of male doctors controlling, you know, telling her what she she could do and couldn't do. Um, so that, but it was still at a hospital, but, but yeah. That's pretty Relatively. awesome. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I had um, Devin, my first in a hospital, but then I had the other three at home. Mm. It was really awesome. And I help women deliver babies all over the world. So it's a really important aspect of my life. It's a part of my life that um, cool. started everything for me. I wouldn't be mm-hmm. doing what I'm doing without having had a natural birth. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I I'm would love curious. to help anybody with that. Hmm? No, I was just, um, sorry, never mind what I was just thinking. It just came in, came in sure? Yeah, came <laughs> Okay. In. I, I do that all the time. I, I, got, I got something if it comes back, Carlos. Um, the so train in my mind skip tracks. <laughs> yeah. So, Dana, um, are you aware of the... Um, uh, acupuncture practice of do you, using moxibustion on the little toe to change the position yes. of breech babies. Okay, Definitely. great, great, great. I oh, think yeah, that's yeah. that would be something worth knowing in your in your area of expertise. Mm-hmm. So I've I been did it, that for a lot of years. Yeah, I did it once. I did it once for my cousin, and it did turn the baby. Yeah, yeah it she, works they, amazingly well. They, they she still had a C section or something because there were other things going on and you know so that was kind of a bummer we turned the baby and she still had a c-section it's like oh really oh maybe wait a little longer you know um maybe it gave her trust in using alternative things you know yeah. in different areas of her life after so it was useful i'm sure yeah sure well speaking of alternative uh you also uh are the owner of a business right uh indigo rose and and this uh, is yeah can, can talk about talk about that maybe tell people what that's about sure sure i i I'm, I'm an entrepreneur and I love making money off of doing things that I love that are useful for people. So, I mean, what better life is that? And that's what I'm modeling for my kids. And I hope that they always love what they're doing and can earn a, earn a living off of it. So I make skincare, uh, have a skincare line. And I studied Ayurveda for many years. I've been to India studying at Puerto Rico. 
Um, it's it's a mode of health and wellness that's very ancient, and it's focused on a lot of different aspects of the individual. But what I what I offer is an oil. It's an oil based um, skincare line, and it's really mm-hmm. great. So I make like a my my most my biggest product is called Goddess Oil, and it's this wonderful oil with all these great Ayurvedic herbs and things that really help you look younger and stay healthy. And yes, so mm-hmm. that's my that's kind of my new business. All yes. right, beautiful. Yeah, we're, Carlos and I are big fans of of Ayurveda. So Carlos has done really? some Ayurvedic training. Yeah, yeah. I went have to you the done any shows about it. You should have somebody on. What? I was just going to say I went to the California College of Ayurveda. I'm sure you really, huh? Carlos. This is amazing. I'm so yeah. glad I'm on your show. Yeah, I'm glad you're here too. This is a great conversation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Awesome. And now it's making me wonder, um, how long did it take you to go from like a low wife to a midwife? And how much longer is it before you become a top wife? (laughs) Well, I don't want to be, well, there's different, there's different uh, aspects of midwifery. A top wife. I'm being so stupid. That was just a dumb joke. That was adorable. It really was. Carlos, no one's ever said that to me. I'm very moved. (laughs) I'm going to stay mid. Mid is good. That was terrible. (laughs) <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> yes. Is that a real question? It was a dad joke is all it was. Okay. Okay. Good. Because I'm like, I can, I can still dad. roll with it. I roll, I can roll with it anyway. Yeah, no. <laughs> I love it. Carlos, I'm going to tell that joke for my grandchildren are going to hear about that. That's <laughs> always with a very straight face. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. awesome. Oh man. Oh, that's awesome. So, uh, how, how do people, how do people find you, Dana? And, oh, uh, you, you were saying that you have a free emergency homeschool kit that I think the world needs right now. Oh yeah. How do people find yeah. this? How does this happen? How do people get connected with you? Uh, what services exactly do you offer? Okay. So, um, if you go to danamartin.com, it's D-A-Y-N-A, martin.com, you can see all the, the things that I offer, all the different programs. I have a program to help other people become advocates like me. Luckily, I've been fortunate enough to travel the world and be on TV and just have amazing opportunities as a side effect of promoting radical unschooling. And it's growing so much that I can't keep up with it. And I need to help other people that are passionate about this learn to do this. So I offer a program uh, that starts in May for people interested in that. I have um, the free emergency homeschooling kit. We've got over a thousand that have sold within a couple, not sold, that were given away to people. And in the emergency homeschooling kit, you get my book free, my radical unschooling uh, ebook free, and then also um, a masterclass for free that I share with you about how to start on this path. So I think it's really important to know um, that there's a lot of free resources out there, and I can help direct you to all of them. And there's also some other programs. And if you want to work on a more uh, individual, like intimate basis with me, I do coaching, I do group coaching. You will be supported no matter where you are on the journey. So Beautiful. You can find me there. My books are on there too. I just had a book come out a couple months ago, the end of January, and my newest book is called "Raising Rebels: Parenting <laughs> Advice from the Girl Your Parent War- Your Parents Warned You About." Nice. <laughs> that's great. Kind of a funny title. Oh, that's I great. Just yeah. on the title alone. <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah. laughs> great. Yeah. Great. <clears throat> okay. Well, it was great having you. This is Toulouse. 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 Toulouse Lautrec. Hey, good yes. looking. Oh, oh wow. wow! Well, hey, since we're doing an animal show and tell, this is Neo. Oh. Neo's been with me the whole time. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Neo, so this is, this is so Neo. cute. Sorry about and, my uh, daughter coughing. Oh she yeah. Doesn't have the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> Every time yeah. somebody hears her, they're like, "No, what's wrong?" Yeah. Um, and, uh, oh Neo, I, you're so. Cute. 
I've also had uh, Persephone here the whole time asleep. So she, oh, she's, she's been listening to the whole conversation. So she wonders oh, why Persephone. daddy talks to her at the computer all the time. Um, That's so cute. Uh, My goodness. What about you, Carlos? Do you have any pets? No, only vicariously through others. Okay. Well, that's good. Actually, wait. I do have a pet. It's my own body. <gasps> that's right. That's right. That's my first pet was my body, according yeah, to Yeah, right. And I love Pete Lynn. Gotta care for it. Reference. Mm-hmm. So. Are you take are you taking yourself on walks? I am taking myself on walks like regularly. In fact, after this interview, I'm gonna go because it's beautiful. It's been raining so much, but now it's um really bright and and sunny. So I'm gonna go for a run. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that sounds, sounds great. That sounds great. I might join you for a run, Carlos, just, just oh. here in my neighborhood. Okay, well, we'll do yeah. some still so, running. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think I'm going to have to go now, too, guys. So that's what we're doing. We're going to hang up with you guys. All we're going right. to say goodbye to everybody, and we're just going to run. All right, everybody. <laughs> Excellent. Dana, this has been fantastic. <laughs> yeah, you know, so great. Um, yeah. All right. Been great, guys. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure meeting you. Stay in touch. I'm anxious to hear what else you're doing. And one of the greatest reasons why... Um, one of the greatest things I get out of these kind of things is making new friends. You guys are really awesome. And I'm really grateful that you gave me an opportunity to share about what I do. So thank you. Thanks for sharing so openly with us. Thank you. Thank you. You're brilliant. We appreciate it. You're welcome. You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Very special thanks to our guest, Dana Martin. If you'd like to find out more about Dana Martin, you can find her website at danamartin.com. That's D-A-Y-N-A-M-A-R-T-I-N.com. My name is Oliver Altine. I record, edit, and produce the show. I also wrote our theme song, which you're listening to right now. Please subscribe to The Authenticity Show if you haven't already done so, and find us on social media. And you can find our website at authenticityshow.com. Thanks for listening, and have an authentic day.